afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 42nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a researchers roundtable discussion with Rachel Shacoin, Jennifer Trevetti, and Darian Alexander-Williams. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter at US of Disaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to the soundcloud.com page and connect to the COVID calls podcast. Please do help spread the word about COVID calls, send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself for a future COVID calls discussion. On Wednesday, we will continue our ongoing pandemics and history conversations in a discussion with two historians, Jacob Steer Williams and Monica H. Green. So please do join me tomorrow for pandemics and history. As of today, there are 4,233,504 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That is up from 4 million 152,670 cases reported yesterday. 1,358,000 of those are in the United States, up from 1,339,819 reported on Monday. There are now a total of 81,805 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 79,894 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to these numbers, I've been reading a life story every day and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Brian Holcomb, 46, was a movie lover and devoted father by Joe Giuliano. This appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, April 22nd. Brian Holcomb liked everything about movies. Whether he was writing them, editing them, or making them, he immersed himself in films. He also had a booming voice that not only filled a room, but earned him some reading books for audio release. He had this great, wonderful, deep voice, said his fiancee, Cassie Bodine, who met Mr. Holcomb in an online movie chat. He did an audiobook, Ambrose Bierce's Spook House, and if you hear the voice, you could just imagine. He would just laugh. Oftentimes, he had me and my daughter, Emily, gasping for air. We were laughing so hard. He was so funny, so smart, and so witty. Mr. Holcomb, 46, of ATCO, died Saturday, April 11, at Penn Presbyterian Medical Center from complications of coronavirus. Mr. Holcomb mostly worked freelance assignments in film. Irv Slifkin of Cherry Hill, a film programmer and adjunct journalism professor at Temple University, teamed with him on two projects and called him incredibly talented. He knew everything technically about filmmaking, Slifkin said. We were working on a documentary, and he had to do some editing for it, and the editing he did under a deadline was truly incredible. It wasn't just me, but other people who saw this couldn't believe how great it was. He was very talented, and with all this new technology, he taught himself. Mr. Holcomb and Slifkin were among the organizers of the Real East Film Festival, which was held for two years at the Ritz Theater in Oakland. The two were working on what Slifkin called a potential breakthrough project when the coronavirus pandemic hit. Along with movies, Mr. Holcomb loved his daughter, Hattie. No matter how busy he was with his film projects, he would always have time to get her ready for school, pick her up at the bus stop, and get her ready for bed. Oh my goodness, Hattie was everything for him, Bodine said. He was so involved. There was no doing anything if Hattie was there. It was always, what's going on with Hattie? 
He was just so engaged, which is how he was with anyone. Okay, I'd like to introduce our guests today for this researcher's roundtable discussion. Let me introduce first Rachel Shacoin. She is a civil engineer in the Transportation Planning Division at the United States Department of Transportation Volp Center. Her current work includes safety studies and technical assistance for the National Park Service, as well as virtual public involvement by the Federal Highway Administration. Rachel's background is in emergency management, transportation planning, and public health. Rachel is certified as an Associate Emergency Manager by the International Association of Emergency Managers. Rachel has a PhD in Disaster Science and Management from the University of Delaware. Jennifer Trevetti is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Anthropology and a core faculty member at the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. Her work focuses on historical and cultural contexts of disasters, including questions of vulnerability, inequality, response, resilience, decision-making, and recovery. She is the author of a forthcoming book, which I'm really looking forward to, with Lexington Books Press, Mississippi After Katrina, Disaster Recovery and Reconstruction on the Gulf Coast. She's also the social media manager for the Society for Applied Anthropology's Risk and Disaster Topical Interest Group. Darian Alexander-Williams is completing a PhD in urban planning at MIT where he focuses on disaster recovery, community organizing, black communities, and religious minorities. He is currently working on a few projects, including Floridian hurricane recovery, natural gas pipeline explosions, and non-state religious organization-led planning. Darian previously worked for the Southeast and Caribbean Disaster Resilience Partnership and the Hurricane Matthew Disaster Recovery and Resilience Initiative. So we have a wonderful group of young scholars to talk to today. Rachel, Darian, and Jennifer, thank you for making time to come on COVID Calls. And I would like to remind everyone that you can get questions in. Uh, you can get them in a number of different ways. You can put them in the YouTube live chat, or you can email them to me directly at sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can put them up on, uh, on Twitter and just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. So, um, as we usually do, I'd like to sort of go around um, with a quick round and ask everybody how things are, are where you are. So maybe Rachel, I'll start with you. Where are you calling in from and how are things there? I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Things are, I think, pretty typical of what you're seeing on the East Coast. Uh, face masks are required whenever you go outside. Grocery stores and retail have a limited number of people. Uh, restaurants are all takeout or delivery. But I've definitely noticed that it is extremely crowded out whenever the weather is like somewhat reasonable outside. Uh, and Massachusetts is supposed to open back up on the 19th, but we'll see. And when did you start working from home? Um, I started working from home about mid-March. Uh, there was probably about a week in between when my division chief said that we could work from home to when we were all um, mandated to work from home at the Volpe Center. Okay. And where is the Volpe Center located? Is it there in Cambridge? Yeah, it's in Cambridge. I see. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, Darian, maybe we can come to you. How, where are you calling from and, and how are things there? Um, Maybe I can just piggyback off of what Rachel just said. I, um, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts right now. Um, and uh, like Rachel said, uh, 
things are mostly closed down or have reduced service, um, though as it gets warmer, there is a concerning amount of people outside. Um, I think organizationally, and maybe we can talk about it later, but um, there are some sort of interesting efforts and projects happening in the Boston area to sort of respond to people's needs. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been working from home. I live on campus at MIT. MIT closed down, uh, I think, March 6th. Um, and you know, revoked everyone's card access, so you can't even can't even work if you if you want to go back to your lab. Right, so there's no going back on campus. Okay, definitely not. Jen, same question to you. So I am at the University of Delaware for work, but I actually live in Elkton, Maryland. So I'm in this weird between states situation, um, and both states have been coordinating with each other and coordinating with other states nearby. So there's been some consistency, but every once in a while you'll find yourself kind of tripping over, what do I need to do on different sides of the state line? Um, but there is still a fair amount of back and forth traffic across state lines. That's basically a joint community. Um, everyone sort of goes back and forth anyway, so that hasn't changed too much. But people are responding pretty well to having masks on and other policies that they have in place. I think we'll see how that goes as things get warmer. Um, but where we are right now, people have been pretty good about things from what I've seen. Um, people are respecting distances in the grocery store. They are spreading out when they can. So for the moment, things seem to be settling into a sort of new normal. We'll see how long that lasts, I think. This is, uh, I guess, I should have expected this, but in the last eight weeks, and particularly in the last two weeks, um, these discussions have a lot more to do with people who are obviously being lured outside by good weather and all of the sort of difficulties that that's presenting uh, physically, psychologically, in terms of population density. Those may be some of the things we want to turn to today. Let me start, Rachel, with you, if I could, if you'd introduce us to your, to your work a little bit and then we talk a little bit about maybe some of the transportation implications of um, things that are going to come with testing and with vaccines. But maybe can you can just orient us to your work a little bit first. Sure. So I'm currently a civil engineer in the transportation planning division at the US DOT Volpe Center. I don't currently do a lot of work related to emergency management. I mostly have a portfolio under the National Park Service as well as working with Federal Highway. Um, doing a lot of broad different things. It was a lot related to safety, but I graduated from the University of Delaware where Jen is, uh, and I, while I was there, investigated the travel behaviors that are made during a situation that you could call a parallel to current testing practices called points of dispensing. And in that research, uh, people go to points of dispensing to pick up medicine. So we could consider that similar to if people are going to testing sites to get tested for COVID. Uh, and my research asked, you know, if people have a choice of multiple locations, where are they going to go? What time of day might they go? Who can go? Uh, and that raises a lot of general questions that we could be thinking about related to what's going on now. You know, people have to go to testing sites, particularly if we're going to have this really huge upscale in testing that 
we anticipate and need to happen. So we need to be thinking about um, not only the actual testing uh, operations in itself, but the surrounding transportation impacts that could happen when you have a lot of people converging on a location where the demand might be much greater than the supply. So can we go a little bit further into depth about that? How do you build models of something like that? What kind of analogies do you have to work with to all of a sudden imagine, and I think this is a situation we would very much like to have been in even eight weeks ago, that you know a large portion of any metropolitan area can get tested on demand and it can be done in such a way that they don't have to wait in a line for six hours or eight hours. How do, how do you begin to build that out? Uh, well, so the first I'd like to say the quote that all models are wrong and some are useful. Uh, so in modeling, you might think uh, in the transportation realm, there are travel demand models, which are macroscopic, which means they look at a really high level of resolution of traffic moving along a transportation network. And that's the type of model that I used in my research, but it comes with a lot of assumptions. So I think that rather than necessarily modeling it, we wanna be talking through scenarios to determine general trends that might happen and things that we can plan for without having to go into really specific situations. Since you potentially want um, I mean, at a, like a high national level, they're going to want to provide testing recommendations that would be applicable throughout the country, which will have very different testing um, setups in, in a really cold state versus a hot state versus weather versus rural and urban. Um, you could do a little bit of social related research. There is research that suggests that people will go immediately at the opening of the, the operations as well as even beforehand. There early on back in um, April, there was an instance where a testing site in Pittsburgh opened two hours early because people were just already lining up. Mm. And so that's the sort of thing that we need to be thinking about. Um, if large lines are forming either of people or of vehicles, if it's a drive-through testing site, you know, is that, are those really long lines of people? Is there enough parking? Is the traffic spilling back onto the transportation network? And if it is, is that causing congestion that is preventing other people from getting where they need to go for things like supply chain, law enforcement? So I mean, definitely state departments of transportation can use their travel demand models and other models, but there also just needs to be a lot of communication between the organizations and the public health departments that are running the testing sites and the law enforcement, public works and transportation departments that could be providing support outside of those testing sites. Is this the kind of thing where people would be told that if you're license plate ends with a certain number, you should go on this day, and it ends with a, an odd number, you go on, go on that day? I mean, that, that kind of just trying to portion the load, or is it something more where we might be thinking about doing testing and vaccination in much more widely dispersed sites, or, I mean, I'm asking uh, that, I mean, you that the is, tools of the trade here, but. That's, that is the question. It's definitely gonna vary by locale, but those are the types of distribution methods that you want to investigate. Um, the what you said about the last letter of your license plate raises another point that i want to talk about which is the equity of the testing sites and who they're serving who's able to get to them 
um, what type of people, you know, a lot of the testing sites that first opened were drive-through, which you need a car to get to. And it may be they were open during the day and maybe you have a job during the day or you have children and you can't get to a testing site. You don't want to bring your children to a testing site. Um, so it's, it's in determining the distribution method, you need to consider how your distribution method might be affecting different populations. You know, uh, if you have only a few locations that people are going to, can someone who lives fairly far away without a car get there? Um, versus if you're doing them, because um, like vaccinations need to be administered by a medical professional. So are there enough medical professionals to be at many sites distributed throughout a city? So it's a good question. Well, thank you for that introduction to your work. I really appreciate it. Uh, Darian, let me come to you. Um, same question. Can you just introduce us to the kinds of questions you ask in your work? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so like you introduced, a lot of my past work uh, deals with hurricane disaster recovery um, and in the south. Um, more recently, uh, I've been engaged in questions around blackness, black communities, and COVID-19 response and recovery with a really wonderful group um, led by Bonica Dixon. And uh, one of the things that we're sort of focusing on is like two sides of the coin of like, how is the state or how is the federal government um, delivering certain messages to black communities specifically regarding COVID-19 response, um, behavioral changes and recovery. And then on the other side, how are black people speaking to each other about these things? Mm. Um, and so right now we're in a very exploratory kind of phase, just collecting material, just collecting sort of targeted ads, documents, um, tweets, videos. Um, but some of what's coming up right now uh, relate to processes that we see unfolding at different speeds and different types of disasters. So one thing that's been coming up a lot, even in popular media, is uh, sort of this issue of public health disparity and Black communities disproportionately um, uh, uh, contracting COVID-19 and also dying from COVID-19. And um, sort of already at the start, we're seeing language uh, from sort of official sources or from, from government sources, uh, essentially sort of like reiterating the behavioral changes that need to be made in order to avoid um, the spread of COVID-19, but kind of placing the onus on the individual and making uh, certain processes more visible than we than we might see in a different disaster. So we're not used to a hurricane happening and the government mid hurricane communicating. Uh, you know, the storm is disproportionately affecting Black people. We're kind of used to that conversation happening. You know, a few days after, weeks and years after, when we talk about recovery, um, there might be sort of overlapping language like, you know, people who live in low-lying areas or people who live in substandard housing um, are, you know, more at risk of X, Y, and Z impacts. But um, what's interesting about COVID-19 is sort of a public acknowledgement from the highest levels of like the task force, Dr. Fauci, 
Surgeon General Jerome Adams explicitly saying, we know this is going to affect you. This is already affecting your populations this way. We know this is going to affect you um, in the days to come. This is what you need to do to avoid that in a way that is making more visible the issue of structural racism, racism in public health and in hospital systems. Um, and we're seeing how that has led to very particular alliances and sort of political rallying around certain issues um, in ways that kind of take a little bit more time in say a hurricane disaster. Um, so one is the issue of prisons um, and prison abolition groups, uh, you know, correctly pointing at prisons as being a site where uh, people are at risk, are at a greater risk of contracting COVID-19, um, sort of pointing to the contradiction of probably should not criminalize certain behaviors that we want to discourage because if we send people to jail and they're more likely to get COVID-19 there, you know, what, what is the logic of, of this practice? Um, and all of this sort of circling back to what Stephen Thrasher uh, is going around talking to people about and writing about right now um, in that COVID-19 sort of reveals the necropolitical or reveals uh, or makes us look directly in the face with institutions that have the power and capacity to choose who lives and who dies. Um, and so we saw that in places like North Carolina following Hurricane Floyd, Matthew and uh, and Florence, where environmental justice organizations that had issues with black communities being so close to these industrial hog farms, um, being a chronic issue that led to health problems. But when hurricanes happen, you know, it becomes an even bigger problem as hog, hog waste is washed into people's homes. And there's sort of like fights that have played out. The, the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network has led these fights. Um, the work of Steve Wing and Naima Muhammad. Um, we're seeing that play out a, a little bit differently now where, um, or I guess like some of the questions that we're asking relate to like what, what sort of hybrid disaster response and recovery alliances are we seeing with sort of these lasting issues and these emerging issues. Um, so like I said, prison abolition being one of them. Um, the rent strikes that have been taking place um, being another one, and then this issue of sort of public health. Um, and then I'm a planner, and so I'm also super interested in the built environment, right? And uh, how is this all manifesting when we are seeing early reports coming in of, uh, you know, Chinatowns being a site of a particular kind of discrimination and those businesses failing more quickly? Um, other small businesses that are owned and operated by people of color, by black and brown people specifically, um, not having access to certain funds that are being made available to small businesses right now, um, and places that don't have eviction moratoriums right now, um, black and brown people, you know, disproportionately being evicted. Um, yeah, like how is that changing, like the physical landscape of our cities and our towns? And then what is that, recovery process going to look like and what challenges are going to emerge. I, well, thank you for giving us that introduction. I almost feel like it's, uh, I spoke with Jim Kindra last week from the Disaster Research Center. There was a moment in our conversation where I said, well, Jim, you've just sort of 
taken the guts out of the entire political economy of the United States and put it on a table in front of us. And I feel like that's kind of what you've, you've just done for us there in, in a sense with the kind of questions you're asking. I, I have one follow-up though, um, well, lots of follow-ups, but one I want to start with is the, this, is, this thing you pointed to, which I think is really interesting about time in this disaster, and that, and it, so we are, this is not a slow disaster like climate change, it's not that slow, but it's not as event-centric as what we usually work on in disaster research. Um, and so there is a longer time frame, and your observation that that does make the political structure pretty evident. I mean, to the point at which you have politicians on both sides of the aisle pointing this out and saying, yeah, we have disproportionate impacts here based on age, based on income, based on factors of race. Um, my question to you, I guess, is um, what do we do with that? In other words, it, 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 if that's an observation, does that somehow enable some kind of politics that, that we're not used to seeing? Because the the event unfolding at a slower pace, one would think does provide a space for organizing, for articulation of norms, for um, formation of political, um, particularly with election coming, formation of uh, political alliances that might not be available to you in a 72 hour event. I'm probably being pretty optimistic and naive here, but I wonder, can I get a first take from you on that? Yeah, I, um... I think I have an answer and I'm, I also am, I don't know, I'm like, I'm not sure how committed I am to this answer even, like we're just gonna see how things play out. Um, but I think it's really, what's, what's coming up for me a lot right now is uh, the, the matter of disaster memory and then sort of collective memory and collective trauma. And so um, some of my work, some of my hurricane work in Florida, you know, Florida being a place where, you know, People get hurricanes all the time um, to the point where it's like a cultural thing to you know brag about how many hurricanes that you've dealt with. Um, and uh, some of some of my field work in Florida uh, brought up a lot of stories from residents, faith leaders, uh, people who work in emergency management, people who don't, about like the way previous disasters or previous storms had affected whether or not they even engage in like a long-term recovery process. Mm. Um, and I think part of me thinks like, there's so many issues that are coming up that it's already, it's already too late to address them for this, but maybe we can address them for another disaster. Um, that's kind of pessimistic. I'm sure the work can be done um, for this one, but I think, um, already there are a lot of questions about like, so, so what is what is the recovery going to look like and how can we prepare for Black communities to recover from COVID-19? Because it's not as simple as even making vaccines completely available, um, dispelling rumors and getting people to write information, right? So like one thing that's coming up a lot and people are sort of returning to literature on flu vaccination and also returning to uh, literature on the Spanish influenza uh, pandemic and how that affected black communities in the United States, um, just around the skepticism that communities rightfully have of um, the government coming out with, uh, you know, or like presenting a, 
like a medical intervention that is suddenly like widely available, line up, get a shot in your arm and continue with your day, right? And it being di different than different kinds of rumors and paranoias um, or like anti-vaxxer uh, ideologies about that, right? So like black and brown people in the United States having collective memory of forced sterilization, um, including within living memory, and also uh, memories about things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments that maybe the wider population doesn't really encounter unless they uh, get a degree and you know apply to do some human research, human subjects research training, and then they learn that as before they get an IRB that this is some bad thing that happened. Um, that memory kind of lives on, and maybe there are more proactive ways that we can go about communicating what a recovery process can look like for Black people before before the vaccine even comes out, and we reach a point where people are not getting vaccinated because of very, um, from their perspective, rational fears and suspicions about um, what happens when you walk into a medical facility when you're a Black person, and things that are supported by you know, peer-reviewed research about people's experiences in hospitals and clinics. Um, so I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but I, I think um, it's sad that uh, we've reached this point and that, you know, that isn't, that hasn't been addressed. And, you know, before this pandemic, you know, there didn't seem to be a lot of political urgency around some of these issues. Um, and I, you know, we see that with so many different kinds of disasters. Like why wait until a disaster to look at a town's building codes? Why wait until a disaster to, you know, have a floodplain ordinance? Um, and so, um, so there's still a little bit of time that we have to, to do a better job than if we, if we don't be explicit about anti-Black violence and um, public health in the United States. Well, I, I think you've given a very, a very clear answer. Uh, and it, it actually, to me, it resonates a lot. There was an editorial in the New York Times today by a pediatrician, Mona Hanna-Atisha, which is engaging this exact issue, which is um, we cannot treat this disaster or any disaster as if um, it's starting with a blank slate. These inheritances, these memories, they're incredibly hard to quantify, which makes it hard for social scientists uh, and engineers and economists to build them in. Um, and people try very hard. A lot of people are dedicated to that, but those inheritances are, they're also incredibly subjective depending on, you know, to talk about the experience of race in America is, a, is a kind of a I don't know how, what that even means, really. I mean, as you said, it's so embodied in, even in particular uh, infrastructures, particular walls, particular bridges, uh, particular neighborhoods. I want to come back to that. Um, Jen, let me turn to you. Um, maybe give us an introduction to your, to your work. Again, you're, you're covering so many areas in your work, just like your colleagues here, but could you give us kind of the overview and then we'll dive in a little bit. Yeah, so I am trained as an anthropologist and I've been looking at questions related to disasters throughout that training process and into my career. Um, most of the work I do is looking at hurricanes and flooding, particularly in the American South. But as you say, I also hit on 
you know, cyclones in Bangladesh and smallpox eradication in India and the Hawaii false missile alert. Um, so it gets a little scattered from there. But a lot of the questions that I'm looking at are long-term and deeply cultural. So trying to figure out why people do or don't or can or can't evacuate or recover um, safely from a hurricane is not an isolated moment, right? These problems don't spring up when the hurricane hits. They didn't start when COVID started. Uh, these are problems that are systemic, that are deeply rooted in culture, and that go way back and will continue way forward um, unless things really shake out differently. So um, a lot of my work looks at those in that long-term context. So looking at what's happening with culture right now in the moment of a disaster, but how does that interweave with these really long-term processes and people's beliefs and behaviors that are rooted in those. Um, so a lot of what I do ends up looking at class and income. So how people are told to do things like, you know, have two weeks of supplies on hand and pay to go get a COVID test, that has very different implications for very different populations, um, particularly when you're talking about a system that ties, you know, we're seeing the repercussions of tying healthcare to employment right now when we're talking about historic unemployment in an era when healthcare is really important in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and then asking questions of how we kind of expect people to put these things up. So it was when UD actually went on hiatus on spring break, for lack of a better term, when the COVID outbreak started, I was actually having a conversation with my introductory students about food deserts. And so it was this weird moment of intersection thinking about everyone is saying get two weeks of supplies on hand, minimize your trips to the grocery store. But that's not possible for every American. Um, it's just not. Or, you know, talking to going, going to remote learning for everyone from kindergarten to college, the digital divide is very real and that's not possible for everyone. So how do we navigate these systemic problems going through this disaster and how do they keep playing out in recovery? I think people hear disaster recovery and they think of it as a much faster process than it is. Hurricane recovery isn't a matter of months, it's a matter of years and decades. So, you know, in my book that you mentioned, I'm talking about Hurricane Katrina, but I'm also talking about how people made decisions based on Hurricane Camille and its impact in 1969 or the 1947 hurricane. So these things are interwoven, which makes it harder to unpack for policymakers. Uh, there's a little bit of sort of push you have to make with that. It makes it harder to fully unpack in a complex conversation, but trying to use anthropology and cultural understanding to help people see the value in that. Um, and I think we are seeing changes. I've been talking to different disaster response organizations and emergency managers at different parts of the country um, in the last year or so. And they're starting to think about how do we approach long-term recovery before the disaster even happens. And so those conversations are starting, um, but I think we're still in the infancy. So it kind of, I'm, part of what I'm starting to look at is what happens next um, in a disaster, both next year, but also next decade, next generation.
remind people that you are listening to COVID Calls and my guests today, Jennifer Trevetti, Darian Alexander-Williams and Rachel Shacoin. I wanna stay with you for just a second, Jen, because you had a, a quote in a piece that was out a few days ago um, by a great journalist in North Carolina, Adam Wagner. And the title of the piece was, this is a yo-yo COVID-19 hits families still suffering from Hurricane Florence, which I think actually connects to all three of your work in one way or another. But this is your quote. You're talking about a situation where people may be facing extra costs with less money in their pocket and less availability of aid. I really worry that the combination drags out recovery even longer and makes the process even more difficult, not just in terms of costs and health risks. So this piece, it was a really inventive article, and I hope people will read it. And I'm glad that you were in uh, that you were part of this article because it didn't just ask the question, "What happens?" We have a pandemic. Now we're heading into hurricane season. It asked what I think is a harder question: We have hurricanes we haven't recovered from yet, and the pandemic is happening. So, could you take us into that a little bit? Because I know you do think about compound disasters and and how planning works across those divides. It's extra difficult, I want to say, um, acknowledging you know, my colleagues in the emergency management world, um, that they're forced into thinking about disasters as sort of discrete, separate things as a matter of policy and planning. They know that doesn't comport with the lived reality of people, and yet they have to kind of approach it that way. It's very complicated. What do you think? I mean, I think you nailed it. It's complicated and it's messy. And I think a lot of times we shy away from public conversations about things that are complicated and messy. And I think it is incredibly difficult to incorporate complicated and messy into effective policy decision making. That said, that doesn't mean we can't do it. Um, so for, you know, talking to Adam about in that article, looking at the fact that Okay, you've got a population that's recovering at this point from multiple hurricanes and multiple hurricanes that acted differently than people in the area might have expected them to. So they moved further inland, they dropped more water, and we're seeing a trend with this, right? This may be tied to climate change, how these hurricanes are behaving differently, which also throws up a lot of questions about if you're using your previous experience to make decisions in your new experience, if those experiences are different, there are a lot of questions there. Um, but so you've got people who are already strapped because recovery is expensive. Whether you choose to rebuild in place or whether you choose to relocate, it's a very expensive endeavor. And aid is, is available, but is also restricted in a lot of ways. So renters in particular may have trouble getting assistance. So you're talking about a situation that's already fraught, that's already financially difficult, and now you toss COVID in on top of it. And not just the disease itself, but the ripple effects of the disease. So the reduced employment rates, the fact that people are cash strapped, the fact that people are having to buy food in bulk to prepare, they're having to buy additional supplies, they may be facing new medical costs. Um, and so what you've got is a situation of crisis on top of crisis. You've got people dealing actively with two or three disasters and so having a conversation about that really calls into question not only how we do make emergency management decisions and you know, full acknowledgement that emergency managers are having to think about them as these discrete units, although again, I think that is shifting. Um, but on top of that, when they tie into these systemic things, we start have to stop and really have a conversation about 
are people struggling financially, for example, to deal with hurricane recovery and COVID simultaneously just because of those events or because of longer term processes that got them to this point? And so I think we have to acknowledge that and start to unpack it. And part of the point that I, I was making with Adam is that it, I think the finances are kind of a concrete thing that people can focus on in some sense, but there's a real mental, emotional, and cultural and social impact to all of this. You know, it's mentally and emotionally draining to recover from an event. It is, I think we're all dealing with the mental and emotional effects of dealing with COVID and lockdown. Um, not to mention, you know, if you're in a family who's facing unemployment or furloughs, there's also a cultural disruption that happens. So a lot of times with hurricane evacuation, we see communities where people often rely on one another for day-to-day -day life torn apart in different ways. And if we're looking at small towns that have been hit by repeated hurricanes, now dealing with unemployment levels rising because of COVID, we're looking potentially at future generations having to relocate out of town, which further disrupts those communities. Um, and so I think that Step one with that is really just acknowledging the complexities and the cultural repercussions of this. This isn't an individual thing. This isn't a thing that one person can deal with on their own. This is something that families and communities and larger cultures have to deal with in common and have to navigate and negotiate with other people and families and cultures to really get a good result. Rachel, let me um, bring this question over, over to you. We're talking about these inheritances in a sense being presented with things we should have already known, but maybe we weren't too aware of. And I'd like to see, ask you how that maybe maps onto transportation and infrastructure, you know, things that we might be learning right now about some weaknesses in the way that we have built our um, transportation infrastructures in the United States or our, our transportation policies. So you were talking earlier about some of your anticipations um, in the next year, how some of those weaknesses might be um, more observable. What do you, when we talk about the inheritance of transportation, what comes to mind for you? What are we learning? Um, I think there's two things that really stand out. The first is that, and uh, Darian will know exactly what I mean as a planner, that uh, the world that we have created is very vehicle-centric, mm. uh, extremely so, that you, um, you go out on a roadway and the most of the right-of-way is dedicated to the cars. You're lucky if you have a four-foot sidewalk. And like, I live in old Cambridge, the sidewalks are made of brick and there are telephone poles in them everywhere. So they're not ADA accessible. Um, and as a part of that, now that we are in this socially distant uh, era where you need to be six feet away from the people that you're walking by, uh, there isn't that right of way existing currently. And that's something that I would say that urban planners and transportation planners have always been advocates for taking the, the road back from the vehicle. And I think that that will become a new, a new um, force of advocacy, even more so of why does this need to be a four lane road? Let's take two of those lanes and create uh, protected bike lanes and more space for be able to, for people to be able to, you know, cr instead of having to walk in the traffic lane to get away from the person who's walking towards you. Um, the second thing it, I would say is our transit systems and the way that they are funded and operated. Uh, you probably know that most transit systems in the United States 
do not make most of, or they do not make enough revenue to cover the cost of their operations from ticket sales. So almost all transit systems are subsidized by the city or state government. And as a part of that, uh, now that ridership is really down and the a small percentage of revenue that they had is even lower, there's these questions of, well, do we reduce service? Do we run it the same, but now we don't have as much money? And in addition to the financial demand on the transit systems, you have to consider it in the complexity of the financial demands of everything else that are going on right now. Um, and, and also the equity of the people who are taking transit systems right now. Like anyone who either has a vehicle is going to be using their vehicle, or if they have the choice to work from home, they might not be taking public transit as often, versus the types of people who have to use transit to get to their jobs, to the market, to their uh, families. And how are they, how will either reducing service or the financial impacts to the transit system, how will that negatively impact the people who have to be on transit? In times of economic recession, historically, does mass transit ridership go up? I'm asking you something in the realm of economics, but I, I mean, do you have a theory of how people might be making use of mass transportation as we're going into the next 6, 12, 18 months? I mean, you've presented the problem of it. If people are going to distance on, they're going to need more train cars, they're going to need more of everything if we're going to be spaced out. But I'm wondering about this issue of, are people going to lose their cars? Are they going to be... Um, I think the other way around. So, so I will caveat this as I don't know with data and I'm, I'm really only saying this from my own personal thoughts and anecdotally talking to some of my friends and coworkers and family. I think it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. I think that people are purchasing cars who don't have them, who have the means to purchase vehicles. Um, anyone who can avoid transit is and anyone who has a personal vehicle will now choose to take their personal vehicle over taking transit. Uh, and anecdotally, most of the people that I've talked to have said that they really wouldn't feel comfortable being on transit, even if things started to open back up. Um, so I think that then again, you have this issue of um, the only people who are using transit are maybe the people who need to use transit because they don't have the option to uh, buy a car or take their own vehicles. So I think we're simultaneously going to see a huge uptick in uh, single occupancy vehicle trips as well as um, uh, decreases in the transit ridership that are sustained over a long period. I mean, there is so much in what you were just talking about, the, the, the problem of transit-oriented development, which is underway in some places, but not nearly as many places as, as we would like, and now it will halt in mid-stride. I, I think what you're predicting to me sounds, sounds um, grim and probably realistic, too, um, particularly in the United States, where we have just really bungled the job of the testing so that we can't actually say in any kind of real significant numbers. Um, you know, how many people are, are sick and what the, um, you know, take to be able to give people good, clear information in relatively real time to make those kind of, those kind of decisions. Um, I want to, since we've sort of moved over to this question of things to come, um, potentially, um, I'd like to um, maybe ask um, if you would, Darian, if you would talk about that a little bit, 
um, particularly you know, thinking about you know, some of the things you've been studying, like, for example, community mutual aid networks, um, you know, religious communities. You know, one of the sort of classic things we find in disaster research, of course, is, is community formation and pro-social uh, behavior and these kinds of things, which all sound very good in the abstract, but when we get down to the actual sort of community level, it doesn't always work that way. Do you see a, a strengthening, for example, of community mutual aid in the, in the communities that you're looking at and what kind of form does that take? Um, definitely. And I, I do want to connect this question to um, this earlier discussion of sort of overlapping disasters and then our very early discussion about disaster memory, where, um, so like I referenced before, Stephen Thrasher, um, who's been kind of making connections between uh, ACT UP organizing and ACT UP mutual aid organizing during the HIV AIDS pandemic. Um, and now, and also cautioning people against making, you know, too, too many connections between those contexts. Um, he said, you know, the availability of drugs will not change um, racism or like the racial outcomes of this and like the, dispro the disproportionate impacts. And so um, we need anti-racist interventions and we need to plan for those. Um, and when we look at our history, um, so ACT UP, for example, many of their practices were criminalized at that time. Practices that are now the foundation of how good um, HIV AIDS um, prevention and care work is done. Um, even sort of, uh, and, and things kind of relating to sort of these larger conversations about who's criminalized and how, right? Like even, um, a person of color or a trans woman of color or a black trans woman specifically walking down the street with um, a purse full of condoms, um, maybe to distribute for, uh, you know, some kind of act up demonstration or some kind of care work, uh, being stopped by the police, searched, criminalized as a sex worker, and then, you know, their entire life is ruined. Um, and so, I think right now I'm trying to lean into and I'm trying to surround myself with people who are like leaning into um, learning from this and uh, sort of planning accordingly. So here in the Boston area, I am organizing with the Charles River Mutual Aid Program, which is uh, kind of Boston area specific, but kind of spanning all the municipalities around us. Um, we've seen with COVID-19 that mutual aid organizing um, and interest in that has increased. Um, all the neighborhood-based mutual aid organizations now have like incredibly long rosters of people willing to share resources and space. Um, and um, like almost, there's only almost, you know, too many resources for coordinators and organizers to even like deal with. Um, we're also seeing um, less now, but very early on in this uh, intense fear in the Boston area specifically around the idea of martial law or like what a lockdown would sort of imply for mutual aid organizing efforts. So, and this was something I didn't really understand. I was just in a bunch of meetings 
people were saying like, well, what do we do when martial law comes down? What do we do when there's a legal stay at home order? Um, you know, are we, are we going to follow that? And like, what, what, what will our work look like um, if we, you know, work beyond the bounds of the law? And um, I didn't understand where that was coming from until I had a few conversations with people who've been here for a lot longer than I have. I've been here for a, a couple years now. Um, and they were reflecting on the Boston Marathon bombing um, several years ago and the, uh, the tragedy of the bombing and then also the collective trauma around the government response immediately after in like the search for the bombers, right? Mm -hmm. So the entire sort of Boston area being in panic mode, right. people stay at home orders happening, tanks rolling down the street, SWAT teams just going from house to house to house. And it was really intriguing that that memory was informing the way people were organizing for COVID-19 response. So people were less thinking like, okay, we want to coordinate this person who's offering resources with this person who's asking for them and more in the mindset of, well, if we're going to have martial law, um, even though post-Boston bombing, it wasn't technically martial law. Um, we're going to have martial law, so we need to stockpile. We need to hoard. And that creates a completely different resource landscape for everybody. Um, and so I think right now we're kind of occupying a space of, okay, so what, what laws, what moves by institutions, either the universities here or the municipal government or the, the state or federal government, uh, how are they enabling this work to be done or how are they making it more stressful and more difficult? Um, and then uh, right now forming relationships to make that very, very clear as early as possible, especially as we enter recovery. Um, so we don't end up in a situation where people are, you know, making the decision between uh, not breaking the law and uh, also not benefiting their community or breaking the law and helping out their own community or someone else. Um, so it's, it's tricky. It's a tricky landscape. Well, let me um, ask, Jen, let me ask you to, if, if you would riff off of that a little bit too, but maybe think it's come up a couple times in talking about the digital divide or this moment we may be in, in terms of distance. And I think it's, again, it's relevant to all of your, your work, really. I mean, that, that conversation has the, the media landscape has mostly focused on what it means for um, white collar workers to work at home and have to, and also to manage raising children at the same time and, um, and has paid much less attention, almost zero attention to the kind of issues that Darian has just raised. Like, what does this mean for organizing? What does this mean for homeless populations? What does it mean for people who um, don't have access to regular internet connection? I know you've been thinking about, about these things, Jen. Where, where do you land on that? Are we gonna see a, is the digital divide now gonna be closed once and for all because society demands it or, or again, I've been such an optimist today, but I'll leave that, let me leave that there. Let me let, let me let you answer my optimistic gambit. <laughs> well, I will say there are there are people who have long been working on this issue who are ramping up their efforts right now because there's an immediate need, right? This isn't just about 
do you have access to the internet and access to information in general? This is, your kid has to turn their homework in online, right? You really need this and this needs to happen now. So I'm hearing from people who are on the ground organizing and helping with these services, speeding up their efforts. Um, now, obviously that comes with the caveat of, you know, those organizations need help and they need funding. And I think we're seeing that reflected in a lot of different ways with the different kinds of donations that are coming out. So increasing donations to places like food banks, right? Things that are already in process that are helping people who need them, ramping up with an acknowledgement that we need that ramp up right now. Um, how that moves into the future is a question that's really on my mind and that some a lot of people have been talking about with me. So everything from, you know, some media companies have been offering free or low cost internet access to people who can't afford it normally in order to facilitate their children completing work at, at online. Um, but what happens after, right? What comes next? How long does that go on for? These are still questions that I think are very much up in the air. Um, and we're also seeing it in you know, specific populations. So a lot of chronically ill and disabled people have been asking for things like better work from home policies or flexible internet attendance of things like conferences or large events and been told, no, this isn't possible, but suddenly this has become possible to a greater extent. And so there's this conversation of what comes next with that, right? You can't just say that's not possible anymore because we know it is we're seeing it become possible in real time. And so I think the question becomes kind of twofold is, are companies willing to keep up with that? But also are people going to continue to pressure and demand it? You know, and there's this question and this call about activism and speaking out about that, but also publicly putting pressure on companies in different ways. There's been a lot of conversation happening online about putting positive, um, focus on companies that are helping their communities, who are feeding the hungry, who are trying to get these policies in place. And there's also been negative pressure, right, mm -hmm. on companies that aren't treating their employees right. the way people want to see them be treated. And so I think that this has the potential to become a space where these things do transform as people keep pressure on. But I also acknowledge that that is asking a lot of people when they already have a lot of their plates. And so I do worry about the burnout on that as well. So I'm cautiously optimistic, I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, but I think it is, it's a conversation we can't avoid anymore. And I think that that comes down to a lot of the things that we're seeing here, healthcare, universal basic income. I've heard that talked about more in the past couple of weeks than in years before, um, all these sorts of things that have been almost on the edges for the larger social discussions are now suddenly coming up to the fore, which is not unexpected, right? We expect to see that in disaster, it sort of lays bare things that maybe people didn't wanna talk about before. Um, so I'm hopeful that people have the energy and the heart to keep going and to keep pushing on these questions. You're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Jen Trivetti, Darian Alexander-Williams, and Rachel Shacoin. Um, can you guys hang out a few more minutes? There's a couple of questions that came in. Are we? Okay, I, I really appreciate it. Um, so I want to get to a question here from Carl Southwell. Uh, Rachel, this is for you. Tying back to something we were talking about before, but he's 
um, he's making a statement here that uh, transit is um, is a vector for diffusion in a pandemic. And I mean, this ties back to this problem we were talking about before about perception of what's safe and what's unsafe and, and what's going on with transit. So, I mean, that's his statement. And I guess um, we can we can take that and think with it. But, you know, I have a question that I might attach to that, which is, um, what are you seeing? What kind of creativity are you seeing out there in different cities to deal with that, either at the perception level, that is like with messaging, or actually at the level of making it safer? Um, so I can really only speak to the um, Boston and the MBTA, which is the transit system here. You haven't um, been free to roam the country and survey various uh, only virtually. Yeah, I um, uh, so I think that they are definitely trying. I know that there were some policies in place early on that I thought were a little misguided, like they were trying to enforce social distancing on buses, which I, I just don't really, they did, when they originally did that, they did not do anything else to change service and I just didn't understand how that was supposed to be employed whether you know if you have three people on a bus that are now six feet apart do you not allow the next person on that person is probably on the bus or trying to catch the bus because they have to use transit um since then and I well so I know that there were also a lot of issues um that there were a lot of MBTA, uh, both T operators and bus drivers who contracted COVID. And so there was this really huge upswell of concern for the health of those workers. And I know that they have since put out messaging that they are cleaning the um, subway cars every day, sometimes every 12 hours, and they're making sure to pay extra attention to wiping down uh, surfaces that are quite frequently touched, like the bars on the subway. Um, I don't have any firsthand experience. I haven't ridden the T since the beginning of March. Uh, and so I can't, I really can't say. Um, and I do, I mean, it is true that transit can be a vector purely because you're in the same space with other people, you're touching it. Like, I, I mean, if you've ever ridden a subway car, it's kind of hard to ride the subway car without touching something. You have to like surf as you go. Not too. Yeah. So. I mean, it's definitely true. There's an interesting, uh, somewhat related thing that I, I don't know if anyone's doing it, but transportation models can be used to trace the, the spread of disease because you figure everyone moving is transportation. And I wonder, and this is really like a larger question, I wonder if anyone is doing that right now. If there are any transportation and behavioral researchers that are trying to get together with epidemiologists to see if they can do contract tracing using transportation-based models. I know that, that there was some of that being done earlier on. I haven't kept up with it about actually predicting um, locations in the Midwest and in less populated states along trucking routes, basically, to sort of get ahead of that as to where, where it might be. But that's, uh, and if people know um, and can, can share that research information with us, I'll be sure to to get that out there. I want to get to a question here from Amy Slayton, and this is open for anybody who might want to take it. Her question, when authorities stress uh, so-called individual responsibility to grapple with COVID-19, are we maybe hearing echoes of Moynihan-era notions that truly good citizens help themselves and with the race-making that that implies? No, does that strike a, a chord, Darian or Jen, um, for you, this sort of emphasis we're hearing about um, 
you know, taking one's own responsibility. I mean, it's much better. Social distancing has been not talking about um, community enforcement, but individuals showing that and individuals wearing masks. Uh, Amy's connecting that to this broader issue about who is a good citizen and, and who isn't. Darian, what do you think? Um, it's, yeah, I mean, I think my answer is pretty predictable in that, like, I, uh, oh, it, it reminds me of an event where I asked um, Brock Long, who was uh, newly appointed to the head of FEMA at that time, how he felt about his navigating his work um, within an administration where one at, couldn't be at that level and explicitly talk about climate change, which, you know, evidently was a hard question for him to answer. Um, and you know, walk up to Brock Long at an airport or something and ask him this question? How did you get a hold of Brock Long to ask this? <laughs> Maybe it's a separate story. It's great that you asked him that. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he's from North Carolina. Yeah, I was in North Carolina. Um, we, you know, everyone in North Carolina knows each other. Um, <laughs> I, but I, I was met with, with an answer about, you know, ultimately, like, none of this, like, this wouldn't really be an issue if, you know, if, if people planned for disasters effectively, um, or, like, you know, essentially the insurance markets will also, like, deal with this, which also sort of individualize um, the expense associated with any kind of, any kind of risk. Um, and obviously, it's like, that's, that's not even like one side of the coin. It's not even like one half of one side of the coin. Um, people shouldn't even like, you know, why are people even in a position to choose whether or not uh, they need to personally prepare for a threat to their life to begin with? Um, and there's so many, there's so many worlds that are possible if we um, imagine ways that we can remove people from from that decision even, you know, being a burden to their daily life. Um, so, so yeah, like, you know, it, individualizing this as like a set of choices that will determine um, whether you live or die, whether your community lives or dies is really dangerous. Um, and it would be really sad if that's how we remember this pandemic and that's how we remember who survived and who didn't. Um, but I'm sure Jennifer has an even better answer than that. <laughs> but there's such a, there's such a, um, there's such a strong gravitational pull towards loneliness and separation in this disaster. That I do, that that Amy's question really, I want to, I think we should sit with that one a little bit a bit more because it, you know there's the usual platitudes in a disaster that people or in disaster preparedness generally people need to you know look after yourself look after your family and that has that sort of like we're all good neoclassical disaster actors here and and you know um that's that's rhetorical a lot of it it doesn't really comport well with how people actually do prepare for and react to disaster but this one is we're learning new i do think we're learning new things here i won't say unprecedented as a historian i'm pretty allergic to that but this emphasis on individuals on space on the the private 
nature of these deaths, the loneliness, I think we're into something a little bit different here and how that connects back to the political economy of good citizens or race making that Amy's talking about. I think that's open right now. I, I think we have to learn a lot more about that. Um, we have to come to conclusion, Jen, I wanna actually just ask you a last question. And this is a question I reserve always for people who are at the DRC uh, at the Disaster Research Center. Um, and, and it's related to methods. Uh, so now we're really gonna get disaster research wonky here, but let's, um, and because so much of what disaster um, research coming out of that center and others in the United States has been about rapid response, has been about sort of immersive field work in the immediate aftermath of a disaster. Um, what kind of things do you see we can't do that, obviously, or, or we can in some modified ways. I don't know. I mean, can you give me a little bit of a heads up on what you're spotting in terms of methodological and maybe ethical adjustments to this moment that we're in? There's yeah, a lot of researchers listening too, so you can get as nerdy as you want to, I think. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I, I, I'm at a really interesting point because I am in the DRC with their rapid response model. Um, but I'm also trained as an anthropologist in, in the anthropology department, which is a completely different type of fieldwork. Um, it is this long-term immersive. And so on both sides, we're having a lot of conversations about logistics and methodology and ethics. Um, with the Disaster Research Center, for example, we've actually stood up a project um, talking to people tied to the state of Delaware and to the University of Delaware gaining oral histories about what happened to them. And that's been an interesting um, space and an interesting conversation because one, it's happening entirely over Zoom right now um, for both researcher and participant safety. Um, but it is also not a survey. It's very much an oral history um, of their experience through it, which I think kind of straddles both sides for me, the disaster side and the anthropology side. Um, and so I, I'm curious to see if we see more of those methods incorporated into projects, even projects that are rapid response, right? We're responding in the middle of this with this project, but in a different way than maybe we might have before. Um, and I know a lot of anthropologists like the risk and disaster uh, TIG, we've been having every other call weeks or uh, every other week calls or so talking about um, just what everybody's dealing with. And that's included a really frank conversation about ethics. Can you go into the field actively if you're potentially putting people at risk? And the general consensus has been no, that it's unethical to act as essentially a disease vector into a community, especially a community that's relatively isolated. Um, and so this is proving a really interesting and potentially fraught methodological and ethical conversation. Um, how do you communicate with people when you can't communicate in person? And I think it's an interesting space because it's a problem that everyone's having in their daily lives right now. Right? How do you maintain social connection when you can't go out and meet with people in groups? Um, but at the same time, we're finding ways around it and finding ways to adapt methodology. Um, some anthropologists who do online ethnography research normally have been putting out articles about here's what you need to know. Uh, if you're going to start doing this work online, 
here are the spaces you should be inhabiting and the questions you should be asking. Um, and so it's been uh, an interesting phenomenon. And I think it's, it's real time, everybody's learning participant observation in a very <laughs> fast and brutal way, whether they wanted to or not, because we're all also all experiencing this ourselves. And so you can't completely disassociate. Um, it's pushing everybody into a new methodological and ethical space that maybe we needed to be having this conversation anyway. Maybe this was an important conversation to be having anyhow. And now this has kind of pushed the issue forward. Um, and so it's been interesting, I will say. Um, and I've been having a lot of conversations with a lot of people in different areas of disaster research about what does this mean going forward? Does this open up opportunities to do work online, um, potentially in areas where maybe you can't get, there's questions of affordability in research for a lot of, especially young scholars and students. Um, does this open up a different space for a different type of research? Does this change how we think about it going forward? Um, and so I think that that's a, a conversation that is ongoing at the DRC and elsewhere. I want to remind people that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and tomorrow my guests will be historians Jacob Steer-Williams and Monica H. Green to talk about pandemics in history. I've learned so much in this hour, I cannot tell you. What a great conversation. Thank you so much, Jennifer Trevetti, Darian Alexander-Williams, and Rachel Shacoin, and we'll hopefully be able to check in with you again as we go over the summer. Maybe we even get you back for another discussion. Thanks again for your creativity and all of your, all of your hard work and for coming on this discussion today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern time.